Welcome back to another episode of The Big Chat with me, George Hughes. In this podcast, we look at how brands, businesses and individuals can get an edge in today's digital world. Today, I'm joined by Alice Tahar. Alice is the senior leader in the marketing team for billion-dollar unicorn company Deliveroo. Deliveroo is one of the fastest-growing companies in Europe, and Alice has been part of its meteoric rise over the past four years. With 10 years of marketing know-how expertise behind her, Alice also has a passion for encouraging personal development. On top of her day job, Alice delivers her talk, How to Grow Like a Badass Unicorn, as a keynote and through in-company training. She aims to help others with their personal development and share what she's learnt. So if you want to grow like a badass unicorn, then listen in. Alice Teha, thank you very much for coming and talking to me today. Very excited to get into all kinds of things about Deliveroo, where you work, and also your side hustle, which is to do with personal development and various other things. We'll get into that. But I always like to kind of start right back at the beginning where it all kind of started for you and, you know, the journey begins somewhere. So am I right in thinking that you, one, used to work for a fairly well-known photographer, but also um, whilst doing so, were managing a Caribbean food store. How do those two things work together? Yeah. Okay. So I started working for a photographer called Terry O'Neill. So he is kind of a contemporary of David Bailey and Brian Duffy and he took pictures of the Stones and the Beatles. And essentially I started filing away all his thousands of negatives that he kept in Sainsbury's bags in his attic and finding all of these never before seen shots before. And then I got the coffees and then I was head of FedEx, which was my most glamorous position. But essentially I grew within the business and there were only two of us running it. And before I knew it, I was kind of running all of his exhibitions and his licensing and his publishing and was an incredible three years there. During which I decided that I wanted to become my own millionaire self. And I was told that you could sell lots of brilliant Caribbean food and water at the Notting Hill Carnival and make a quick buck. So I started my own Caribbean food store and it was kind of like something out of The Apprentice. I had no clue what I was doing. I was the project manager running all of these chefs doing all sorts of things and the generators didn't work and the whole thing wasn't a disaster but it wasn't far off a disaster not quite what you're expecting no yeah no it wasn't but it was an amazing learning experience and i broke even so at least i didn't actually lose money it's which not too was bad relief. is it yeah well, we've got something in common because actually i had a stall at in Notting Hill. Really? At, on the market though, not not at the uh, festival, oh, uh, not okay. at the uh, the the um, carnival. But yeah, way back when, exactly the same thing. I was like, I think I can make loads of money by having a stall on Notting Hill, uh, you know, and basically on Portobello Road. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my mum made these like clocks. So I was like, I'm going to go and sell my mum's clocks <laughs> and you know this kind of stuff. I think I made like fifty quid or something. Yeah, you know, ultimately, exactly. like when I factored in all my costs and everything else. It's... Oh my! I remember <laughs> we did flyers for. Notting Hill Carnival saying, come to our store with this flyer and get £1.50 off. And in hindsight, I've been to Notting Hill Carnival every year of my life since I was about 14. Who on earth goes to a specific <laughs> store with a flyer? I mean, it was so yeah. ridiculous now when you think about it. But uh, yeah, Quite a bit of competition my... as well. When you walk down the street there, it's like every <laughs> single person outside their house, they've got a barbecue on and they're selling, you know, jerk chicken and stuff. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah, I was young and foolish and excitable. I yeah. guess it was my first side hustle I never really thought about it like that well I said you know I I introduced um, uh, you know Terry O'Neill as being a fairly well-known photographer of course he's incredibly famous isn't he and I mean it must have been amazing to to work for him how on earth did you find yourself in that role so this was a this was one of those lessons of take every opportunity that you can and make the best of it so I'd done an internship at the Sunday Times magazine a few years before worked my butt off really enjoyed it and impressed the editor and when he started Terry O'Neill's business He was looking for a bright young thing who'd work for no money and kind of run around after them and asked me if I wanted to join them. And so I really started at the bottom of the ladder, like getting the coffees in and then gradually used my initiative Mm -hmm. and found more opportunities to do more exciting things, continued to prove myself and just grew grew a role for myself really and at the same time was working for this incredible photographer who had this archive of absolute treasures. So... The momentum of the company, I was there at the right time 
and my kind of ambition and enthusiasm was a recipe in yeah. recipe of heaven, really. What sort of highlights were from, from when you were working there? Did you? I mean, you talked about finding all these photos in his attic. Were there some particular ones that you just remember being kind yeah. of incredible finds? Yeah, I mean, there's prints now that are some of the best-selling prints that I found on looking through a magnifying glass on a lighting box going, tell, you've got to look at this picture. You've got to look at this. And that was quite extraordinary. And then I was kind of, I was doing everything. So I was doing PR for some of the exhibitions and I got front page of the weekend magazine in the Daily Mail. And that for me was a really massive personal achievement. Yeah. And he wasn't a hard sell. People love his imagery and love his story. Yeah. But to kind of see that direct impact of some of my work that was and setting up exhibitions and those exhibitions generating hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of pounds in revenue that was a really incredible feeling yeah, yeah. I mean with with some of these guys you know um, artists basically who they sometimes they, they're a bit stuck in the past aren't they I mean the same things over and over again they don't sort of look to the future of how they could monetize what they're doing how they could make more money mm. new initiatives new things keeping up with the times and sometimes it takes someone like you to come in and go we could be doing all these things and suddenly he's kind of going yes this is you know i have to say i can't take i can't take lots of the credit he had a business partner a man yeah. called robin morgan who was a genius mastermind mm -hmm. and so he was the one that was really running the show yeah. and it was more i would go to him and say hey i found this gallery in new york or us i think we should do x y and z and generally i was just given free reign to go and do the things that that we wanted to do. That would have must have been a lot of fun. Were you doing a lot of marketing then? Was that kind of how you got into the whole concept of, of being a marketer? I wasn't doing marketing in the traditional sense. I was doing more PR. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the press releases and, and things like that. And I created the Terry O'Neill Twitter profile. And lo and behold, I created a logo without knowing it because I just took a screenshot of Terry's signature that he signs his prints with and created the logo and then I built the website but everything was self-taught and I had no idea yeah. what I was doing so it was marketing but not in any kind of a traditional structured yeah. sense it was sort of just thinking about the thing that we ought to do next yeah whatever was needed at that time yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly and yeah. yeah starting the Twitter profile and sharing his pictures and things through that mm -hmm. but um to be honest, I didn't have a bloody clue. <laughs> Learning as you go along. Hell yeah. Yeah. So did you learn a, a lot when you were there? I imagine you must have. It's one of those things with jobs, isn't it? You only learn when you go to the next job just how much you learn in the last one. And I learned masses, but in a very unstructured way. Mm -hmm. What When I moved on to my next job, that was where I got a lot more of the structure, discipline and the marketing side of things. Yeah. 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 So obviously that takes us into talking about now marketing so you went from there to work with uh cherry london was that yeah, yeah that's right so that seems like a sort of quite a random leap in a way isn't it so how on earth that how did that happen i'm always completely honest to be completely honest i decided that i wanted a i was working with terry and robin who were brilliant in their own ways but were men in their 60s and it was just me and i really wanted to work with some more people my own age but also to work in an environment that was more structured and learn the learn the building blocks of marketing, so mm -hmm. to speak. And I applied for Cherry London. I just started applying for jobs and it was the first job I interviewed for and I got it. And I remember having this moment of thinking, shit, that kind of wasn't meant to happen. Like, I didn't realise this was going to happen so quickly. And I remember thinking, is this on the path towards where I think I want to get mm -hmm. to? Am I going to learn a lot here? And both of the answers were yes. So I decided to take it. So it was a bit of, as life always often is, of lucky opportunities mm -hmm. and what comes your way. I thought it would be a good opportunity because it was a partnerships agency. So it was all about building relationships between brands. And I'd done a lot of that at Terry O'Neill. So yeah. I guess there was a segue into mm -hmm. it. And, uh, and yeah, I thought that marketing agency would be a good next step. Yeah. For me. I also think you make your own luck though, don't you? I mean, you're saying it's a bit of luck, but of course you're probably like hustling, trying to find the next thing, looking there, you know, trying applying for things that maybe you aren't sure you're going to get. And then lo and behold, someone goes, yeah, she's the right fit. And that's, you know, right time, right place, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think you're right. And honestly, I work really hard. You know, when you yeah. have the opportunity to do, when you have an interview, 
I prep a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't spend an hour. I spend two or three nights before the interview thinking about all of the things mm -hmm. that I want to say. And I've been doing that since I was young. So yeah, 100% mm -hmm. it is about investing the time and demonstrating that you care and that yeah. you are going to work hard for them. Mm -hmm. And was that um, quite a learning curve then going in? So you've come from sort of a photography world, you've been doing more PR, you're suddenly now working at a company that's predominantly marketing. Were you sort of like, right, I better get the book and work out what I'm doing here? I think what, what I realised was that I'd learned a huge amount that was self-taught that I hadn't quite given myself credit for. Yes, I was getting a lot more structure a lot more feedback a lot more critical feedback in the right way about a contact report not being three pages long and trying to build a project plan and why that's important and what the hell are brand pillars and a brand triangle what the hell and how do you build a presentation so I think I'd taken a lot and I'd learned a huge amount that I hadn't quite appreciated but this was about finessing it was about figuring out the right way to do things, the processes, and understanding how businesses work, mm -hmm. because Terry O'Neill's was such a unique experience. Mm -hmm. And now I was getting exposure to FMCG brands yeah. and the whole marketing ecosystem. So yeah, it was definitely where I learned a lot more about traditional mm -hmm. marketing and what that is all about. Because you worked with some really interesting brands while you were there. So what were some of the highlights of the clients you were working with? Some of the highlights for the clients I was working with. So I worked on my, the first project that I really managed on my own end to end was for Simple Skincare, which is a Unilever brand. And we built this whole partnerships campaign with um, ASICs and HelloFresh, which at the time, all those years ago, had was really new and exciting brand. And I remember I did everything in that campaign from pitching it to the client, to sourcing the partners. And it was a very proud moment to kind of take full ownership of, yeah. um, of, of that end-to-end -end process. But then the interesting thing about a partnerships agency is that you're speaking to different brands all the time. And so I might be approaching a brand for a partnership deal and they might say yes or they might say no but you're building relationships with lots of mm -hmm. senior people within client side roles and so there were business new business opportunities that I generated off the back of that and then going through to pitch to some of those um, people was was really exciting and then the last thing I'd kind of talk about was the intern program that we started yeah. which is another hey, Alice, we've got some interns. Can you figure out what the hell we're going to do with them mm -hmm. type scenario? And working out what did we want to teach them and what did we want our legacy as an agency to be on these individuals who were coming through and how did we take the best interns and nurture them into the talent for Cherry um, tomorrow? And it was, I guess, there that I first started to realise that I had a natural kind of talent for learning and nurturing mm -hmm. and guidance guiding yeah yeah because yeah. Yeah. i think you know that's a fantastic thing to have done because you know the whole sort of internship thing has been notoriously bad at lots and lots of different companies you know sometimes it can be just seen as pretty much free labor uh, i came from tv world prior to being involved in sort of oh, you know, yeah. advertising that's stuff notoriously and yeah, I mean, you know, it's you're coming in to make tea for two weeks, basically, you're not really doing much. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could end up being working somewhere for quite a few months unpaid and it's just all. So I think having that structure and providing, you know, value to those interns so that actually when they come out of it, even if they don't stay there, they've got, they've learned stuff. Um, did you feel, did it give you a real sense of accomplishment having done that? Especially when they would get jobs afterwards and then you'd start to see them grow within the agency. Mm -hmm. That was what I really loved and that's aligned with the purpose that I now know which is about me helping others but at the same time helping myself to get to a better place yeah. and that was the embodiment of that identifying these bright young things fresh out of university and then seeing them blossom within the agency mm -hmm. cherry blossom I never realized the pun there but ah, there it's, good. Go. it's a good one um, yeah it was really it was yeah. a really satisfying feeling yeah. and so you were 
you mentioned about you know you'd be uh, a byproduct of you looking for partnerships was quite nice because you you might find um, new business as a result because you obviously be pitching an idea and they may say I don't want that but actually uh, we are interested in other things you know maybe we could have a chat was that sort of a, a big part of what you were doing was the new business side were you is that something that you enjoyed it wasn't something that I enjoyed at first in fact one of the things I really learned by being at Cherry London was sometimes you learn the most from the things that you find the most difficult. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we would have to call up to try and get partners for a campaign and you'd be calling up receptionists, they wouldn't want to put you through. Then you would get through and then suddenly you're like, oh shit, I've got to build a rapport with this person over the phone. And it was really hard and I found it really scary. And I'm extroverted and I'm pretty confident. And even for me, I would like have to psych myself up for making these calls. So. Definitely, I found it challenging. But once you're able to, if you can build a rapport with somebody over the phone when you're trying to essentially sell them something, mm. it's a really good skill yeah. to have. And again, an accomplishment when you would spend your power hour making those calls and you'd be finished, you go, that was really hard, but I'm proud of myself and I did it. Yeah. yeah. You have to be able to take quite a few no's. Um, that's the, the rejection side of it is quite difficult. Yeah, um, and sweet talk a few receptionists. Yeah, yeah. One of my first ever jobs was um, booking audiences for TV shows. Yeah. So I used to have to sit down uh, with literally like a printout of names and numbers and yeah. just rattle through. And it's just cold calling basically. And you just, they just think you were trying to sell them, I don't know, uh, you know, double glazing. Yeah. And people would just tell you to F off and, you know, slam the phone down on you. But after you've been doing it for about two hours, you just got really desensitised to it. Yeah, you do. And then when you've got somebody that got excited about coming to sort of be on Big Brother or, you know, Fame Academy or Celebrity, whatever, yeah. uh, you know, they, it was really good results. You're like, oh, this is good. I'm actually giving somebody something nice here, you yeah. know. I would have thought people would be clamouring to get on those shows and then the audiences. Weirdly, I think back then it was not quite so. This is sort of when they weren't quite so famous. Right. And I don't know. It was not, not as easy as you think. Okay. Uh, mainly once you actually just getting the, the initial rapport with somebody to let yeah. them talk to you. Uh, or rather let, let you talk to them was difficult because they just think you're trying to sell them something and then <laughs> slam well, the phone down. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the key. I think there's two real things that I learned from it. One was... You better get good at your elevator pitch. You better be yeah. able to sell your idea really quickly over the phone before they hang up on you, one. And two, it's as much about active listening and giving them the opportunity to tell you what their biggest challenges are, what their business objectives mm -hmm. are for the year so that you can then shape your pitch or yeah. the opportunity that you're offering to their needs. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think you when you, when you have to sell... You become, you start to become good at it because you have to. Otherwise, yeah. you just re get rejected all yeah. the time. I also think it makes you better at loads of other things. I think when you've, like, when you've had to do that, and it's a very difficult thing to do. And once you've sort of accomplished that, and you've sort of, you know, got that under your belt, everything else seems quite easy in a way, and it gives you a lot of skills for lots of other things. I think just the way you talk to people and. Like you say, listening is very, very important with that sort of yeah. stuff. Written communication. Yeah. So how can I say what I need to say in as few words as possible and get somebody really rallied up and excited about something yeah. over an email? Yeah. How to do a good looking presentation, which we all know that if something looks good, it's so much easier to sell. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I definitely think you're right. Yeah. The transferable skills that you get are yeah. invaluable for your future. Yeah, on. yeah. Unfortunately, not that many people decide to stick at doing that particular endeavour. I think, you know, the, the sort of really good salespeople are very few and far between and high demand. Uh, we're actually looking to recruit somebody at the moment. It's incredibly difficult. Really? Yeah, really yeah. Very hard. So you obviously had a great time at Cherry London, and but all things often do come to an end, don't they? So you moved away and you went to work for Whitbread for Beefeater Restaurants, right? What, was, what, what prompted that move? So... I loved my time at Cherry London. I had the most amazing boss and it was there that I learned the importance of having a good boss and how huge an impact they can have on your career and shaping that in a positive way. And I'd loved the company culture. I'd loved beers at five o'clock on a Friday and I'd loved working with other people that were my age and really felt like a family. But the parts that I didn't love so much were the fact that Cherry was very partnerships focused and we were often kind of a, one of the smaller agencies in a much bigger cog. Mm -hmm. 
And actually, it was there that I first heard of this concept North Star, which is something that I talk about a lot in my talks now, which is the idea of what does your dream life look like in the future? And I can't remember where I heard it. I wish I could remember because I'd love to thank that person because it's yeah. been so instrumental in my journey. But I thought I'd love to be the marketing, the head of marketing for Cowshed. Cowshed at the time was a what I thought a cool mm. brand, yeah. aspirational. It had really cool design. And I realized it was a client facing role and that I was in an agency. And as I started to think about what my next move would be, I realized that I wanted to go client side. And actually speaking to recruiters, they said, you've got quite an interesting story, but you don't have any blue chip experience mm -hmm. or kind of big brand behind you. Yeah. And I wanted to go and be the marketing manager of Pizza Express or well, Leon didn't exist at the time, but yeah. a brand that was aspirational for me. Mm -hmm. But with my experience, that was actually really difficult and mm -hmm. I couldn't get through the door. Mm -hmm. And what I decided was I sacrificed the brand. So I went to work for Beef Eater, which is, wasn't the type of brand that I wanted to work for. Sometimes I tell people that I work for Beef Eater and they'd assume it was the gym, gin, the gin brand. Gin company, yeah. And I wouldn't correct them. Yeah. Oh, no. But, oh. Um, but like... I had to make that change mm -hmm. in order to move into the role that I wanted. So I moved from a, to a brand that I wasn't particularly passionate about, but into the right role. Mm -hmm. And I loved being a generalist marketer. I loved being client side. And I remember my boss at the time, she tried to put me off the role because she'd hired someone before and that person kind of hadn't realized what they were mm -hmm. signing on to. So she really tried to put me off. And that's when I realized that I really, really wanted the job. And I recognized that it was going to be a really good stepping stone for yeah. me. So I went over to, to, to Beef Eater, had, a, had an amazing time there. It's actually a very interesting thing when you market to somebody that's not yourself. Mm -hmm. Unlike at Deliveroo now where we have so far been marketing mainly to people that look and mm -hmm. act and come from places like us. This is a very different demographic and you learn a lot by marketing to people that aren't yourself. So I, I think that was actually, in hindsight, a really good thing Move. that I did. Yeah. And um, I was lucky that she gave me the chance because my CV didn't say that I could do the job, but she was very much one of those people that hired on attitude and personality as mm -hmm. opposed to what your CV said that you could yeah. do. So I, it was another slightly lucky break, I suppose, but another one where I worked so hard on the interview presentation and I got their brand guidelines and I made it all look completely beefeater. And I think she was quite taken aback by just how much effort I'd put into it. And when you demonstrate how much you really want a role and the loops between which you're willing to jump to get it, people are more likely to give you a chance. I totally agree with that. I think that, you know, it's, it's showing that you really want that role and that you're so keen and that you can always already see yourself there and that you're adding value straight away. Yeah. People want that. That's what they want. They want the keen person that's going to really get stuck in when they start there rather than somebody who's just, oh, it's just another job and now oh, I've done this before and I've got loads of experience. And, you know. Yeah. I think that's especially true when you're like more junior. Yeah. I think as you get more senior, you need mm -hmm. to have a lot more of the hard skills, but mm -hmm. also the, 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 diplomacy skills and the strategic mm -hmm. thinking skills yeah. to enable you to do a role but certainly first five to seven years of your career enthusiasm yeah. will get you a hell of a long way that's very true that's yeah. very true so um how long were you there for how was that so i one of the things i love most about it was whitbread was really committed to mm -hmm. development and it was here that i started to go on some really interesting courses that I was just the keen one at the front. You know, some people go into training and they hate it. And they're like, this is a day of my life. I'm so bored. They sit at the back and they just see it as a bit of a free pass of a day. I'm the antithesis of that. I'm the person with their hands up at the front being like, I know the answer, I do. <laughs> and, and I was so keen. And I guess it was the first realization that this area was something that I really got on board with and I really enjoyed as, a, as an individual. So I really loved that aspect about it. I managed somebody that was older than me for the first time, which was quite challenging mm -hmm. at first because I had to really build up my credibility and it was very much about working as a team of equals as opposed to 
telling somebody what to do. And I think I was still quite early on in my management journey. So it was definitely a learning for me of, of, of how to do that. Okay. But ultimately, Whitbread is a FTSE 100 company. Mm-hmm. And I am not as well suited to FTSE 100 companies as I am to fast growing, dynamic, entrepreneurial startup environments. So I found that difficult. I didn't like that I had to wear a certain type of clothing to go into the office. I found that really difficult. There were no drinks at five o'clock on a Friday because everyone was driving home in their Volvos to go and see their kids, which is totally cool because that's where they are in their life stage. But as a 26-year-old Londonite, I really missed the... I, I really miss the vibrancy of working in London and working in the types of companies mm-hmm. that I'd worked in before. So I often talk to people about, you learn as much from jobs about what you don't like and what you don't enjoy as what you do. And as long as you learn from those things and take them on board as part of your next opportunity, then you won't make the same, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but you'll make more informed choices in the future, put it that way. I think that's really sage advice, definitely. I mean, I think... I, you know, I worked for years and years as a freelance uh, TV professional, yeah. and you're going from contract to contract. I don't know how you guys do that, by it's, the way. It does take a certain sort of uh, type of personality, it has to be said. Um, <laughs> but you will always, and everybody says the same thing, you always will sort of every few ones, you'll get a nasty one where you just hate it. You know, for whatever reason, it could be that the boss is a nightmare or the production is under-resourced or whatever it might be but you immediately know what it is you don't like about this particular career and when you go to your next role you know what to look for you know you know what to the red flags as well to make sure I don't want to get involved in that again absolutely so it's kind of fast track to that exact experience most people only go from sort of one job to another and it's quite a slow process and you maybe don't get that experience as much but yeah yeah another thing that really helped me at Whitbread to identify my next opportunity was I got a coach. So it was at Whitbread that I first applied for the Marketing Academy Scholarship. Mm -hmm. And the Marketing Academy Scholarship is a free program, nine months long of personal development on steroids, essentially. And you get mentoring with some of the top CMOs in the country, you get free coaching for nine months, and you go on these incredibly enriching boot camps with 29 other people also on this journey hearing from yeah, the most incredible business leaders that you can. And I applied for the first time at Whitbread and I got really far, I nearly got on, but I didn't get through and I was gutted. Mm. I really was gutted. I wanted it so badly and I'd worked so hard for it. But I wasn't ready. I was still really young and still Mm -hmm. really early on in my journey and they said to me, we don't think you've quite figured out what you want to do yet and they wanted you to have a bit more of a clue. And that was where the personal development journey really started because it forced me to ask questions of myself like, well, what do I want to do and where do I want to go? And I started getting into personal development. I started to listen to audiobooks. My favorite personal development audiobook is the first one I ever listened to, which is The Chimp Paradox. Have you read right, it? Yes, yeah, yeah. I listened to audiobooks and I used to listen mm-hmm. to it on the car in the car on the way home from, from mm-hmm. Luton. Completely changed the way that mm-hmm. I thought about my, my mind. And lots of other things and I went on this amazing other course before I got on the scholarship called, it's now called, I need to confirm what it's called, anyway it's called Magpie at the time and I started to look at my values Mm -hmm. and my super strengths and my weaknesses and understand purpose and Mm -hmm. it was like, it was like crack and I was like oh my gosh this stuff is amazing and when you take it on board and when you use it to its full potential, the opportunities are limitless. So, uh, so yeah, that was, that was where I got introduced to personal development. And as part of that, I had a career coach. And again, it was, it's all, it's all breeding the same message, which is about self-awareness and creating actionable plans off the back of that self-awareness mm-hmm. by understanding what you want to do and then enabling yourself to actually go out and do those things. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned about this this concept of having a North Star mm. earlier, and you couldn't remember where you'd heard that. But mm. So I'm assuming that's the idea that you, you just know what your trajectory is. You have a sort of direction in mind, and then there might be different steps to get there, but you're sort of, is that, would that be a sort of fair assessment? Yeah, so a yeah. North Star is, what are you, what are you aiming towards? What mm-hmm. does the pinnacle look like? 
And it doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get there. For example, uh, when I when I talk about North Star, if you if you put a, a rocket ship just two centimeters in place, it will go in a completely different direction. But if you're aiming for the moon and then you hit another star, it's still pretty incredible to have got that far and that high and the trajectory might change as you go, but you're still aiming for something really big and meaningful and challenging yourself for something that's exceptional. And I think that having that awareness of what success really looks like looks like to you helps you make decisions. So it helped me go from agency to client side because I realized I wanted a client side role. Delivery certainly isn't cow shed, but having then got to know myself a lot better along the journey, I realized that I didn't really care about cosmetics, but being a beef eater, what I learned was that I really loved food and I really enjoyed the menu development and it was something that I was massively passionate about. And so my North Star morphed mm -hmm. and it was no longer about cow shed it was about food and then Deliveroo came knocking and I remember this guttural sense of this is my next this is this is my next stop amazing yeah so I think that's I think that's really amazing that you you had this kind of period of like self-awareness where you obviously you got involved with this course magpie you had tried to get onto the other course but hadn't quite made it but you decided to think about who am I what do I want yeah. What sort of person am I? What sort of company do I want to be at? And then when Deliveroo came along, you actually thought, yeah, this is it. This is definitely what I want to do. It's not, it's, you know, it's a fast growth company. It's got that vibe yeah. of a startup. It's not cow shed, but it's kind of a similar sort of thing. You know, um, it's part of that same sort of community of businesses that are springing up all over the place at the moment. So what was it, what was the difference for you between being at Whitbread, big corporate company, <laughs> Uh, where I don't know where they're based, but outside of London, Luton. Luton okay, there we are. Glamorous you know, Luton. Yeah, everyone going driving there in their Volvos yeah. to working at Deliveroo, which is just probably quite an exciting place to be. I'd imagine. What's the, what's the difference like? Uh, indescribable, practically. <laughs> I remember when I told people that I was leaving Whitbread and I was going to this startup that four years ago was not really known, and and they were like, "Deliver who?" What are you talking about? And I would explain the concept. And it was so early on that people just didn't get it, mm -hmm. really. And I think they thought I was taking quite a big risk. And I guess I was taking a big risk because there's a big chance that Deliveroo might not have done what it has done. And I remember doing the interview, them saying to me, well, what happens if we fail? And I said, well, I'm young. I don't have kids or a mortgage. I'll get another job. <laughs> I think this will be an amazing learning opportunity. It was... It was completely and utterly different to Whitbread where there was so much process, so much structure, very strong hierarchy to a brand that was flying by the seat of our pants really. And every single day we, we hadn't done anything, any of the stuff that we were doing before. and every day you were it was exhausting right because you didn't have any of the processes in place that you needed and it was it was hard but it was so exciting and you felt like you were a really big fish in a very small pond and you know I sat four seats away from Will the CEO and would be in all of the meetings with all of the GMs mm -hmm. and all of the senior leadership team and we were a really, really small group and I was right there in the thick of it. And oh, it couldn't, it couldn't have been more exciting. I bet that must have been great. Yeah. And also, you know, it's like you say, that finding your feet as a company together as well, just trying to work out who are we and what are we doing and, and who, who buys from us and all those sort of things. And also like that sort of edginess of, will we succeed, won't we succeed, we're a startup you know, we're funded, all that sort of thing. And competitors are coming in and, you know, you've got obviously Uber Eats have popped up, haven't they? Yeah. So what U was... Uber Eats didn't exist when, no. I, when, I, when I first joined. I, I think they started the, the maybe the summer that, that I first joined. But yeah, there were all sorts of things and there was... We got, we got so much wrong. We were really throwing things at the wall and, and, mm -hmm. and seeing what stuck. But I think fundamentally what we had was an amazing product. Mm -hmm. And we had a service that people were crying out for that hadn't existed before. 
And I talk about Deliveroo finding its market in the gap. Mm-hmm. You hear the term gap in the market, but market in the gap for me is so much more accurate in that you identify some demand that has been nascent and not really doing anything before. But as soon as you find it and are able to build a product within it, mm-hmm. you have this huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when I applied for the job, I remember I hadn't used the service before. I'd, I'd seen these scooters darting around everywhere, but I hadn't used it before. And I had the seamless experience. Mm-hmm. And I thought, holy shit, this is really cool. Yeah. This is really cool. And luckily, lots of other people thought it was mm-hmm. extremely cool. Mm-hmm. And yes, we've invested in marketing and all sorts of different things. But I think fundamentally, the reason that Deliveroo is has built into the brand that it is, is because it's an amazing service. Because mm-hmm. I um, I lived in New York, um, but I moved back here about five years ago. Yeah. And over there, there are services just like Deliveroo. Yeah. And that's just how you order. Like, yeah. That was just it, right? And when I came back to the UK, I thought, oh, it's weird that we don't have that. Yeah. You well, know, you could have started Deliveroo have then. Yeah, if I'd have been, had that sort of entrepreneurial head on me at that point. Well, that's you know? how Will started the company because yeah. he'd come from New York where in the city that never sleeps, you can get anything you want to yeah. deliver at any time. And he exactly like you was like, yeah. why is nobody doing this here? And he was working in Canary Wharf incredibly hard as a banker and could only get takeaway kebabs or dominoes and yeah. that was where he yeah. came up with the idea came up with the idea for it yeah i mean it makes you phenomenally lazy that's the only thing in new york because you go you wake up in the morning on a sunday you go God, i really fancy a bagel okay i'm gonna order a bagel from the cafe that's literally about three minutes walk away from yeah. my apartment yeah. but i just can't be bothered to get out of bed so just you know <laughs> and every single place is on one of those apps yeah you walk home from work and you order it i think there's a slight difference in 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 manhattan though because people do eat out an awful lot because it's quite expensive actually to buy food in the supermarket so yeah. it's sort of it works out comparably expensive yeah and you have you have different cultures in different countries that make people more inclined to order. Mm. So in the UAE, for example, right now, it's like if we're suffering in 35 degrees, it's like 45 degrees there. You can't go outside. So Mm. the ordering culture is just endemic. And Mm. you wouldn't bat an eyelid about getting toilet roll delivered Mm. to you because that's the way in which people live. Mm. In Hong Kong, people's flats are so small, they don't have kitchens. So you literally cannot cook. Mm -hmm. And likewise, I imagine the attitudes in Manhattan are people are living very busy lives they've got tiny weenie kitchens food's really expensive they eat out a lot so it just becomes part of your modus Mm. operandi yeah definitely but I think that's happening now in the UK and with the wider population is that we are starting to get to a place where food delivery is becoming more and more normalized and we are such an on-the-go culture now that it's people just can't be they don't, can't be bothered to cook for themselves and they just want things now and it needs to be easy and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, I think people have people have different need states at different times. You might have an evening where you've got a completely free evening and you fancy cooking mm-hmm. for an hour and a half and that's amazing, great. And we by no means discourage people from cooking. Cooking is a mm. wonderful joy. But there might be some nights where you have to work late and you just want something easy or you decide that you want to invest the hour that you would have spent cooking going to the gym. And in those instances, we believe that everybody has the right to have the food they want delivered as opposed to having to have beans on toast Mm -hmm. if they don't want beans on toast. By the way, sometimes spaghetti hoops on toast is one of life's little joys. That is a joy. Oh, Sunday night when you come home from being away, spaghetti hoops on toast. Oh. Yeah. I'm a beans on toast man I, that's one of my favourites have you done it with cheese? sometimes but yeah. I feel like that's adulteration so I'm not sure about that one let me give you a little tip go on cheddar cheese grilled Ooh. then the beans on top oh on top mm. oh okay that's that's it's, a bit different it's naughty yeah, yeah. That's, that could be okay that's really good um, I think the main the key difference for me about about why Deliveroo is so great and the whole culture of now having apps that you can order food from Mm. is that if you said tonight should we have a takeaway say five five six years ago tonight should we have a takeaway you can literally list on one hand the options available to you Mm -hmm. it's like five genres basically of types of food yeah and you sort of are limited in terms of like you know some are good and some aren't 
now it's like everything you can ever imagine is on there. Yeah. It's like there are categories you've never even thought of. Yeah. Going, oh, should we have Ethiopian food? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's insane. And then you're yeah. going, I mean, you know, you order Chinese food and there's just so many different types of Chinese food from dim sum to, you know, conventional sort of British Chinese to actually authentic Chinese. Mm. You know, it's kind of, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. And we hear about people using the app, not necessarily to order food but to look at what the restaurants are in a certain area mm -hmm. and because we've got the review functionality where you've got different ratings for restaurants yeah. it becomes a, a, another way in which people can find restaurants that have been curated for them in a specific area that they trust yeah. so it's interesting to see the ways in which the product is evolving by the nature of which people are using yeah. it and presumably it's really helping those local restaurants because you know, restaurant that might not actually have ordinarily done takeaway because they didn't want to have to take away drivers and all that kind of stuff. They can now put out far more food to people and sort of, you know, get their revenue up and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Our argument is always that delivery is an incremental revenue stream because mm -hmm. the occasion to dine in versus dine at home is very, very different. And Arguably, when you choose to dine into a restaurant, you are doing that under a different set of circumstances than when you want to sit at home in your pajamas and watch Netflix while mm -hmm. you eat. And so we certainly see ourselves as being an additional revenue stream. And yeah, once you have a good experience, whether it's in-store or through delivery, that's going to either drive you back into store at another mm -hmm. occasion and you see a lot of people, yeah, trialing new restaurants yeah. that they may not have visited um, the bricks and mortar site. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Can we talk about sort of Deliveroo's marketing mm. strategy? You mm. know, what, what, sort of, what sort of things do you think you guys do that, that maybe is different to other people? Is it a conventional marketing model or are you trying different things and doing it? So I think the thing that I really respect about the way that we operate as a marketing function is the way in which we think about firstly product market fit so looking at where we're investing marketing money and making sure that we're going to see a return on that marketing money by ensuring that that area has got product market fit for delivery so there are enough restaurants on the platform that you're not going to go onto the app and see kind of one restaurant or not see any restaurants now of course if you do national advertising there'll be areas of the country that don't have Deliveroo mm -hmm. but if you're going to do more localized marketing making sure that you have that lens that says if we spend money in this area we are going to see results mm -hmm. and we've got a good enough product that there's going to be take up of the service so I think that's one of the things that I have really respected about the the scrutiny that we will have when investing in marketing and the other thing is the way in which we see ourselves as a growth function mm -hmm. so Yes, we can be traditional marketers and spend millions of pounds on a big brand campaign and that's all great. And if you want to drive brand awareness, that's the best way in which to do it. But seeing ourselves as a growth function, we might invest in other areas of the P&L to have the best service and best product that we can that we believe is long term going to drive more customers to the platform and get customers to stay with us for longer. So for example, you might choose to invest in commercial and in sales headcount. So you've got lots of business development managers on the ground onboarding all of the restaurants that customers want because we know that selection is the number one reason why customers would choose Deliveroo mm -hmm. over another service. It means investing in the best engineers that we can get so that we're building the best tech platform possible so that customers find our app the most easy to use. Mm -hmm. It might be about investing in operations so that we can give customers, extend the delivery radiuses of restaurants so that we can give customers access to more restaurants. So the way in which we make those trade-offs between where we spend what we would call a growth budget as opposed to say a marketing budget is again an approach that I really respect in the way in which we do marketing. And presumably that varies depending on geographical area where, where you're doing things. I mean, London, I feel like you must have that fairly kind of sorted in central London. You've got access to all the restaurants you need. You need to amplify that anymore. Whereas if you're trying to push into another city in the UK, you might that might be the first thing that needs to happen is we need to get more restaurants on the books here because we're not 
we don't have enough. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, you, you, you could look at it like that, but there's still huge potential to grow even in inner London. Mm-hmm. There are still households not using yeah. delivery, for example, or they might be using a competitor. Mm-hmm. So, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. And But it, it's a famous marketing adage that it's 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 cheaper to retain a customer than to acquire a new one mm-hmm. and to drive more exist more orders from your existing customers might be just as sensible and move as acquiring a new one and you might be able to drive more orders from your existing base in an area that's already strong yeah so yeah you have to consider all those things mm-hmm. presumably um your customers are kind of at the heart of everything you're doing and and they are important to you because you need to give them best service because obviously with different competitors springing up there's there is competition out there mm-hmm. what do you do, what do you do to to make people have your app and not somebody else's i think the investment in selection and having the best possible product that we can is the number one thing that we do because if our restaurant selection is the best if our app experience is the best if our customer service experience is the best then why would you choose to use anybody else for example i remember that Pret-a-Manger said they didn't invest any money in marketing because they spent everything on making sure that that product was the best possible product that you can have. So fundamentally, I think you have to nail those things and that will naturally and organically get people to stay with you rather than doing nice little novel things that are just a bit of a flash in the pan. Yeah, or just massive advertising campaigns where you've got, you haven't got the product to back it up. Precisely. Yeah. Are there specific aspects to what you're doing from a marketing perspective that you find do deliver the best results? Or is it just as a whole, as you say? I mean, are you finding that like, for example, TV advertising is, you know, still giving you the best kind of return on investment than versus, I don't know, digital or mm. out of home? Is there any sort of things that you, you have come across recently? So I think TV still delivers yeah. delivers results, top line results. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly hard to track though, mm. and considering the amount that we spend and all of the econo- econometric models that exist and things, I guess delivery doesn't have as much history as some of those more mm. legacy businesses, but it's still really difficult to be able to directly prove, um, prove the impact. One of the interesting channels that Deliveroo has that's quite unique to our product, although I guess it's like packaging for FMCGs, Mm -hmm. for example, are our riders and Insight branding. So Mm -hmm. that would be the window stickers that you might see on the windows of a restaurant, which is actually the vertical that I look after globally. Mm -hmm. And those are some of our best performing marketing channels in terms of attribution. So when we ask a new customer, how did you hear about us? They'll often say a rider or a restaurant, they're hearing about us in a restaurant. And particularly the riders, it's quite a unique opportunity to have tens of thousands of riders going around doing their roles mm-hmm. and fulfilling their duties. And it's almost like branded advertising. Yeah. So that's quite unique. And then with the restaurant promotion that we do via the restaurant sites themselves again that's quite unique because you've got these partners advocating for your service and you know you'll walk around some areas of london and every other restaurant's got a sticker on the window and Mm -hmm. if you're walking home thinking about what you're going to have for dinner Mm -hmm. and you're perhaps walking on your merry way to sainsbury's local Mm -hmm. and you see lots of delivery stickers in a window might nod you to make a different Mm -hmm. decision yeah definitely also probably uh extremely cheap way of getting a massive amount of publicity at the end of the day. I mean, stickers don't cost very much, do they? <laughs> you know? No, um, but one of the things that we've learned is that you, if you just send a sticker to a restaurant, that doesn't mean that they're going to put them up because mm-hmm. restaurant owners have got lots of other things to do mm-hmm. and it's sitting in a box and they often get thrown away. So actually, although the assets themselves might not be huge mm-hmm. amounts of money, to have them effectively installed, you often need to have people on the ground going there and sticking up the right. assets for you. Yeah. So that obviously is a incremental cost to yeah. just the asset. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you've been in delivery for quite a while. I have. Um, 
But you've now got something else going on, mm. which ties us back to what you were talking about with personal development and everything else. So you you now work four days a week, yeah, uh, delivery and one day a week on other things, which we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. So. What sort of spurred the move to going down to a four-day week and what is it you're now doing? Could you just tell me about, a bit about that? So I'll start a little bit from the beginning. Okay, go on. Which is the marketing scholarship that I talked about when I was at Whitbread. I then reapplied when I got to Deliveroo and hurrah, I got on. Got in. And the scholarship was life-changing in a positive way. It allowed me to get to know myself in a way that I hadn't before, understand really more about my North Star and be honest about what that North Star was. And I think I was always afraid of it before because it seemed a little bit far-fetched and ridiculous. And it enabled me to realise that the only thing that was standing between the North Star and me getting there was actually myself Mm -hmm. and the self-limiting beliefs that I had that you couldn't go after these things or it was too ridiculous for words. And the whole process of the scholarship completely debunked that. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I don't still think it's farcical and it doesn't scare me sometimes, it does, but I'm like, fuck it, I'm gonna do it anyway. So that experience on the scholarship was so incredibly enriching and transformational for me. And what I realized was that some of the top skills that I have had were in public speaking, in being vulnerable, in being talking about leadership, in training, in facilitation. And the embodiment of these things is what I'm doing now, which is I need to call a, not a cooler job title, but a better job title. I'm a personal development enthusiast. Okay. Sometimes I say evangelist, but then that sometimes makes me seem a bit crazy. But I am crazy about this thing because... The whole process of realising those things has been so instrumental in me having a positive change on my life that I want to help other people to have the same experience. It's been so powerful for me. Imagine if I could help other people to do the same things that I have done. Not to say that the things I've done are so amazing, but everybody has their own amazing things that they could achieve. They just might need some support in helping them to get there. So the past 18 months, I have started speaking i've started blogging i started writing and slowly but surely this kind of side hustle is growing into Mm -hmm. a fully fledged business and two months ago i went down to four days a week at delivery so that i could spend a day dedicated to the side hustle because i was doing everything in the evenings and at weekends and it was exhausting Mm. and i needed that day and i took a 20 percent pay cut And so far I am generating more than I have lost in the revenue that I was making at Deliveroo by running training in companies, by now charging when I speak. Mm -hmm. And it's growing every day and new opportunities like this one come along and then that opens another window which Mm -hmm. opens another door and it's just incredibly exciting to see it start to grow. That's an incredibly brave thing to go down to four days a week, 20% pay cuts, to embark on something that you're not even sure if this is going to be a success. Uh, you I'm know, or maybe sure. you were sure, maybe you just felt so sure, but that's a, that's a level of confidence which is impressive as well. I, I think, contrary to that, it is, it's sort of brave, but it's sort of not brave. I've still got 80% of my pay. And when I decided to go down to four days a week, I did my budget to look at, okay, can I live on this amount of money? Can I pay my mortgage? Can I eat? Yes, I can. I might not be able to go on a skiing holiday, but that was a sacrifice I was willing to take. So actually, I think the way in which I'm doing it is almost less brave Mm -hmm. because I didn't just sack it all in and decide to start from zero. I'm building something up while maintaining Mm -hmm. a job that I love. And at the same time, I'm bringing a lot more of the personal development work I'm doing into Deliveroo. So I'm looking at global learning and development Mm -hmm. programs. I'm running a performance marketing training, virtual Mm -hmm. training program, 12 weeks at Deliveroo for our marketers, which is bringing together the side hustle and Deliveroo to generate some value there as well. Mm So I think for people that are thinking about how do I start to go after my North Star? Sure, you can make a really brave move and quit your job and start. Or you can do what I'm doing, which is small, iterative steps yeah. in the direction of travel that you want to go to. Mm-hmm. 
so that you have the security of your current role, the opportunity of the new world that you're building, and then all the good stuff that can happen yeah. in between. I think you're, you're sensible because when you do embark on a journey like you're embarking on right now, it does take time to, to like you say, build up those opportunities, to get the message out, to discover yourself and work out what you're actually doing. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to do that when you've got a period of time to accomplish that rather than going, oh my God, I've sacked in my job. I need to make money in the next month or I'm going to be unable to pay my mortgage, which is not, not a fun time to be no. uh, doing things. No, exactly. So, and, and yeah, fig- that, that whole journey of figuring it out and I'm very transparent about the way in which I'm figuring it out. And I, I think one of the things when I'm delivering training programs in companies or when I'm doing my talks, the feedback that I get of why I'm different and why people connect with me is because they can see themselves in me mm-hmm. because I'm not a million miles away from what they could mm-hmm. be doing if they put their minds to it. Yeah. And the the fact that it feels achievable and mm-hmm. they can see somebody that is still a commercial marketer doing a normal job yeah. and doing this stuff on the side makes it seem more realistic mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. So with, with what you're doing at the moment, um, just explain a little bit to me about sort of what, you're, what you are evangelizing. What is the gospel that you're preaching? What is your message? And what, what, what are you sort of trying to encourage people to do? Yeah. So my mission is I want to make personal development mainstream. So one of these days, I'll say it on camera, my North Star for this, I want to take over a Love Island ad break. Everybody is entitled to watch whatever they want to watch and I understand escapism and all of that kind of stuff, so no judgment. But if people spent five minutes thinking about every week their development and what's gone well this week and why, what could I have done better, what are my three objectives for the week, I just can't imagine how much more we could achieve if we applied ourselves a little bit more. So my mission is to help people as part of their own journeys to be inspired to go off and do their own thing. And I give different ideas about what that could be, whether it's going to read uh, The Chimp Paradox, whether or not it's going on a course, uh, whether or not it's listening to a, a, a podcast like this, all of those types of things. So I'm doing that through speaking and I'm now running training in companies and I'm launching my own course called How to Grow Like a Badass Unicorn because my mantra is that every single person has a unique set of skills, valuable skills. And if we are able to identify what those are, if we're able to find ways in which to leverage them, to lean in to our spikes and make them spikier, we can all have a greater impact on the world, which could, it's a pretty scary place out there. Imagine if we were all having a bigger, more positive contribution to it, but also on ourselves as well. And it's this wonderful, virtuous circle where you feel good about what you're doing and you have loads of energy and then you do more stuff mm-hmm. and then the laws of attraction and, and mm-hmm. it just it just keeps it, it keeps building and growing and you feel really, really good about it. So I hope that through my story and through my honesty about things as well that other people will be encouraged as part of their own journey. That's a fantastic message. What, what if somebody wants to um, find out more about that, would they need to come to your website or come to listen to you speak or what would be the best thing they could do to find out more? So I think the, the you can follow my ongoing journey because I'm really upfront about all the different things mm-hmm. I'm doing on Instagram primarily. I put a lot of stuff on LinkedIn as well, but mm-hmm. Instagram gets a little bit more up close and personal. And then you can go onto my website, alistahar.com. How narcissistic is that? Your <laughs> website, which is your own name. And like you go onto the page and it's just my face. It's a nice picture. Oh gosh, so cringe, but fuck it. I am my own brand. Yeah, I, you have I to, knew I wa- personal branding is the most torturous thing in the world. I love it. <laughs> personal branding, right? If you think about a good business and a good business brand, it's just the same thing. Yeah. You know what you're about and you try and nail mm-hmm. it for as much of the term as possible. Having a good personal brand means that you're actually not an asshole because you recognize your strengths and your development areas and you're navigating yourself around Mm -hmm. that. So we shouldn't, I wrote a piece for Campaign Magazine that says that 
personal brand shouldn't make us feel yucky inside mm-hmm. and want to vomit on ourselves is actually a really dare I say selfless thing because it means that <laughs> you're trying to show up as the best version of yourself for as much of the yeah. time as possible and you're putting yourself out there and you're putting yourself on the line you're opening up you're you know it's, it's sort of like wearing your heart on your sleeve in a sense that's I think what it's all about well I think it, it, it's different for, for different people but by I have this saying if knowledge is power then what greater gift can there be than knowing yourself because when you know yourself, you can be your best self for as much of the time as possible, which is the synthesis of what personal development is all about for me. And there are two amazing quotes that I use. They say there are two important days in your life, the day that you are born and the day that you figure out why. And when people find their why, it's, it means that they can have this huge impact on the world, but huge impact on, on themselves. And you can live a meaningful life. And we're so blessed. I went to the Anne Frank Museum a few months ago and Emma Thompson talked about Anne Frank who had these huge aspirations about being a world-famous writer. And it said, all of our should-haves are our opportunities. Like, we are so fortunate. Anybody listening to this in the first world is so fortunate. We won the life lottery. Like, take that opportunity by the hands and give it some welly because somebody else is going to do it otherwise. Yeah. That's very true, very true. So I want to play a little game with you, if that's all right. So it's a game that we play with all our guests, which is called Two Truths, One Lie. I like this game. So it's quite simple. I'm going to read you three statements, one of which is a lie, and then you have to guess which one is the lie. About you? Not about me, just this general statement. Right, general statement. General statement. So, um, I mean, it is these statements are sort of vaguely relevant to you and to your <laughs> okay. background. So they're not just like randomly plucked out of the air. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm going to read the three statements first and then you have to see if you can guess which one's the lie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first statement is 75% of children today want to be YouTubers and vloggers. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one is one in six young people eat fast food twice a day. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and the final one is the average number of fast food outlets per hundred thousand people has risen from forty-seven to sixty-one in the last eight years. So I feel like I know what you've done, which is you've—they're all sort of true in their own way, but one of them you've kind of changed the percentage or the number. Well, you have to. Tell is me. that right? You have to tell me. I'm going to go with the fast food outlets being false. Um, you are absolutely right. Although I actually read the statistic wrong. So in fact, they were all true. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say it was a trick question. Uh, no, it, that, that was the one that's the kind of outlier. So basically, um, fast food re- restaurants have actually risen quite significantly in the last 10 years. They basically like up by about 30%, which I think is quite, quite a large amount. The other two are actually true, would you believe? Yeah. I, 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 I remember the statistic about the, the similar one for the YouTubers one, which was um, more people wanted to be a page three model than a nurse. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's, that is awful, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, but hey, you know, yeah. I don't have any problem with kids wanting to be YouTubers. If you've got, if that's, if that's yeah. your purpose, if that's where your skills are, if you've mm. got something good that you want to say, well, yeah. go for it. I'm living my childhood dream of wanting to have a bigger mm-hmm. impact and yeah. be a be a bigger personality mm-hmm. than than I would have thought that I would have yeah. it would have been possible to be. Yeah. Fuck it, let them dream. I think it's I great. like that we live in a world now where it's acceptable to be that person. Yeah. And I think that you know in the past it was a case of oh you can't show off. Oh you know we're British we sort of have to you know keep our mouths shut and don't shout about yourself too much and it mm. was that sort of attitude completely different to the sort of American perspective, which is, you know, if, you, if you're good at something, yeah. tell everybody about it. Yeah. And I think it's really nice that we can sort of own that now and actually, you know, own our own narrative and be out there and sort of spread, spread your message to the world in whatever way you want to. I, I think if you've got a good message, if you're an arsehole, nobody wants to listen to you. Yeah. But if you've got a good message that people want to hear about then yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. We should be less British about it. So much, I think, of what's Help, what helped me back my self-limiting beliefs were, well, I can't do this because people will think I'm a show-off and people will think that I'm really up myself and I care so much about what people think. Mm-hmm. And actually, 
when I was able to let go of some of that stuff and say, okay, well, some people might think I'm a show off and it's better to be like Marmite than vanilla and people yeah. to like me or hate me. And actually there was a very freeing idea that my mentor gave to me, which was if while you're doing this is to help others, which is the reason that you say that you're doing it, yes, then you're actually doing them a disservice by not sharing your content because you're more worried about what people are going to think about you and what the haters might say about you than you are about what you're giving to others. Mm. So stop worrying so much about yourself and think about the people that you're trying to do this for. Yeah. And that was really freeing. It was actually what made me vlog for the first time because I realised that she was right. It's actually again back to your original point, which is stop being so selfish, be more selfless, you know, if you've got a message, share it with people, they will get some value from it. You know, it's, it's unfair of you to hold on to all that valuable information. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really, really nice talking to you. I've got one more question that I want to ask, and this is kind of the thrust of our series, which is if you sort of had one piece of advice for brands, marketers, mm. business owners, possibly even, you know, people who are looking to, you know, look inwards about personal development, mm -hmm. What do you think um, people need to do to sort of get an edge in today's world, which is a digital world? So we've been talking for 45 minutes. You've heard lots of what I say. Let's see how clear my messages are. What would you say that my message would be? I'd say your message is find your North Star, work out who you are and what you want to do and then pursue that and don't worry about um, breaking a few eggs along the way. Yeah, and if you were to translate that to a business or a brand? Know who you are, I think that's it, isn't it? It is know who you are. And then nail yeah. it. Yeah. So I talk about exactly, if we carry your analogy through, your North Star would be, what are you really good at? What's your market in the gap? Then go ahead and do it and do it in the best way possible. I talk about having a product that's good enough to lick, nailing that and yeah, just being fearless about going after that. So yay. I love it. That's great. <laughs> that's great. I love that. Thanks very much for talking to you. It's Thank been really you. interesting. I can't wait to see kind of what's next for you with the personal growth journey and sort of you spreading your message to the world. Thank so you. yeah, I'll be watching the space. Thank you. Lovely. One, two, three, listen. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast for more insightful conversations with industry experts. And if you want to watch video highlights of our guests, go to Small Films Big Chat on YouTube. All the information you'll need is in the show notes, but if you can't find them, then head over to smallfilms.com forward slash big hyphen chat.